You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I tell you about these plants because these plants have come to me as I have prayed for us in the past couple of weeks. I am mindful that we are all here for different reasons. Different things have drawn us and brought us. We're in different states of soul. For some of you, it may be that that you know your soul has been in a state of neglect. You're like that withered back porch plant, and you know that you need some tending. Others of you, a few of you, might be in that more acute state, like the, the cast irons on my front porch. There's some outside force that has come in, that has crushed you, that has killed some part of you. You know that you are in need of Christ resurrecting power in your soul. Others of you may be more like this ficus. You are in a state of flourishing and new growth, and you're here because you want to be nourished and nurtured in that. And then others of you are like that plucky little plant, and you're here because why wouldn't you be here? You're going to worship, and your friends are here. It's going to be great, but you too need water. And so my prayer has been for all of us, whatever state you may be in, that this will be a time of of watering, watering in the living waters, that we would be like the trees of Psalm 1, but in this new day, being, being irrigated, not by the law, but by the Spirit. This has been my prayer. And what we're going to be doing is a panoramic study of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Broad strokes, big picture, one theme, belovedness. And I was um, actually teaching this book in a more intensive, thorough way over the course of a year when Leslie first talked to me about possibly coming and doing a retreat. And it occurred to me, I loved teaching these books so much, that I wanted to have the opportunity to teach these books again. I loved the thought of doing it with a different format to a different group of women. I knew that this is what I was going to do from a very early start, but I'd really like to start by showing you how I came to the study of First and Second Samuel in the first place, because it has everything to do with this theme of belovedness. And this goes back to the summer of 2020, not a banner year for most people. And I'd been locked up with my kids for a few months when an opportunity arose for me to have two days alone in a friend's house. And so I will do retreats like this from time to time. I always have some book of the Bible that I'm studying. And and I decided for this time that I was going to study the Song of Solomon. Now, usually when I do this with a book, I connect pretty immediately. I love to study the Word. You know, this is usually a very intimate time with God for me. But I really struggled on this one. I was reading things like this. Oh, most beautiful among women, says the lover. Now, I know that in Song of Solomon, this this conversation between the lover and the beloved, this is for us a picture of Christ's love 
for his church. But of course we want to know this as individuals too, right? And so I'm reading this, Oh, most beautiful among women, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. And as I'm reading this, I just can't imagine Christ saying this to me as an individual. I mean, that's one thing to say this in general to the church, but, but to me, for Jesus to say to me, I, I love you uniquely, distinctly, I'm in love with you, the sight of you brings joy to my heart, I just couldn't really believe it. And the harder I tried, it, it seemed the more hard my own heart became. I also felt almost shamed by the wholeheartedness of the bride for the groom. My affection for Christ ebbs and flows, and then from time to time it gets obstructed by other loves. As far as my betrothal to Christ goes, I have to confess infidelity every single week. Most merciful God, I have not loved you with my whole heart. And so here I was, wanting intimacy with God through his word, but having this, for me, sort of rare experience, and that the more I read, the farther away he seemed. I was troubled by this. I wasn't sure what to do about it. I was mindful about it. I was prayerful about it. And it was a few months later when I just happened to be reading a passage in 2 Samuel that I remembered David's name means beloved. And it struck me that David was someone who very clearly knew the love of God. He didn't know it in a romanticized or poetic or idealized world like Song of Solomon, which really ultimately is a picture of where we're going. David knew the love of God in this world in which we live. He, he's a historical figure with, with real successes and failures and trials and sin. This was a person that I could relate to. And so I decided that he was going to be my mentor in belovedness, and I was going to study First and Second Samuel for that purpose. As I began to study, I noticed very quickly that these books are really the tale of two kings. And I could see through the literary devices that were involved, which I'm going to spare y'all by the way, but, um, but I could see through all of these literary devices that the author very much intended us to compare and to contrast these two kings of Israel, Saul and David. So Saul was Israel's first king. He was seen by God, loved by God, called by God. And his response, we'll see tonight, was disbelief and the self-reliance that always comes with disbelief. He was outwardly religious, but he didn't actually trust God. You could say that Saul is a picture of our flesh. David is a picture of the life 
of faith that we have when we know God actually does love us, not out of some divine duty, but from a real natural affection. And so he is a picture of our new self, our inner self, united with Christ by faith. So again, these two, man, these two men, these two kings, what they have in common is that both of them are anointed for a particular task. Both experienced the power of the Spirit on more than one occasion. Both were gifted warriors. Both were religious. There was really just one difference between them. David believed that God loved him, and Saul did not. And so what we're going to see as we study is that for Saul, when turbulent times came, he took matters into his own hands. He had to. There was no one to turn to. When he was confronted with wrongdoing, he told lies. He made excuses. There was no room in his mind for mercy. When turbulent times come for David, he's able to wait because he believes that God is going to follow through on what he has said. And when he's confronted with wrongdoing, he's able to admit it, to be honest about it, because he trusts that there is going to be some mercy for him to land in. So neither man was morally perfect, but the overall pattern of Saul's life was one of increasing rebellion, whereas for David, it is going to be one of increasing surrender in which even his failures lead to a stronger relationship with God. The, the, the greatest moment of David's life, which is actually his hardest moment, the moment of greatest pain, we're going to see him say to God, essentially, not my will, but your will be done. In his trust of the Father's love, David foreshadows Christ. And recall what is said, what the Father says over Christ in the Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. So David is, is a whisper of what is to come, the beloved. And what this means for us is that however much we might identify with Saul in the flesh, if we are in Christ, our true identity is David. What we see of David, the, the beloved life that he lives, this is ours. And so we're, we're studying this to know what actually belongs to us. I have a recurrent dream that some of you may actually have because I, I learned recently of one other person who has this. And it's a dream in which I go into the attic of my house and somehow my attic is, you know, at least as big as this room. And it's filled with all these treasures that, that either I, I'd forgotten I had or I didn't know I had. And the whole dream is just exploring all this stuff in the attic and then you wake up and it's sad because it, it was just a dream. But this is what we're doing with First and Second Samuel. We are going through the attic. We're seeing all of these treasures that belong to us or, or that we either didn't know we had them or we forgot that we had them. 
But for us, we don't wake up. We get to go back into our regular life and take them with us. This is what we're going to do. Now, tonight is actually going to be the hardest part because we're really just looking um, primarily at the life of Saul. And um, I'm going to be saying a lot of hard things about Saul. As I say this, I want for you to keep in mind my heart. I'm not looking to point fingers at Saul. If I seem an expert in Saul's mind, it's because I know his struggles. I share his struggles. I think all of us do to some point. But we need to look at his life because we need that mirror. This is a way to examine, well, well, where are we really? And then from there, tomorrow, we'll look more at the life of David. Now, with Saul, um, just sort of an obvious thing maybe I should say, we're covering a really huge book with tons of narrative. I'm going to be summarizing um, most of the narrative portions just in my own words, and then we'll, we'll come and, and look in our Bibles um, at the highlighted verses from time to time. You can go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel 15, because what I want to do um, for Saul is actually begin by showing us where he's going. You know, sometimes you're watching a movie and the very first scene is action that's going to take place later on. And then you go and you start the action from the very beginning and you see how they got to that point. So we're gonna, we're gonna look at a low point in Saul's life just to learn a little bit about how he ends up. And then after we've looked at this, We'll go back to the beginning of his call and, and see the progress from that point to, to this place of chapter 15. In chapter 15, Saul has just won a battle against the Amalekites. He was given some very specific instructions about what he was to do following this battle. And he did not do them. That's all you need to know for right now. He had a specific instruction, and he did not do it. And now Samuel, the prophet who had anointed him as king, arrives on the scene and pronounces judgment over Saul for his disobedience. And one of the first things that Saul says to him is this. This is chapter 15, verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord appointed you king over Israel. Now what we see in this little phrase is that what Saul believed about himself took precedence in his mind over what God had said of him. It was his own self-definition that mattered rather than what the Lord said about him. If you'll skip down to verse 23, we then read Samuel still speaking, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, it might seem ironic that someone who thinks of himself as being small would choose to act according to his own knowledge. Would you not want to take the word of the greater being and do what the greater being tells you to do? But this is not the case if you don't trust 
that other voice. And so Saul, though he was very insecure, did not trust the word of the Lord enough to follow it. That left him with his own word. And then finally from this section, verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now in that world, robes were a symbol of office. And on the hem of the robe, there would be some designation of what that office actually was. To tear away the hem, it, it was an impulsive act. It was also a symbolic act. It was rejecting the office of prophet. And to reject the prophet is to reject the one who sent him. So what we have in chapter 15 is a story of a kingship which has gone very badly wrong, so badly wrong that it's taken away. And what we see in this, this character sketch of, of Saul is pride. Now, it would be a mistake to think that Saul's being little in his own eyes, that this insecurity was in some way a buffer against pride. Pride is not about the inflation of your ego or how deflated your ego is. It is where you place that ego. When your ego is the center of your universe, when the self is the center of your own world, this is pride. And so in that situation, you know, the, the ego really can inflate or deflate on a daily basis, but it's the centrality of ego as the center of your universe that defines pride. So if you'll look in your booklets on the very last page, you're going to see two trees. And these two trees um, are a gift of the Desert Fathers. I'm not really a terribly into the Desert Fathers, but I really do like this illustration. They saw pride as being the trunk, the gateway to all these other vices. Because what we are saying when we've made ourselves the center of our own universe is that we are entitled to certain things. And if we don't have them, then God has failed us or other people have failed us. And so we are going to obtain what we deserve on our own, by our own means, and that's where you have all the vices that are coming out of that. So, so pride, the centrality of self, leads to all these other vices in which we are meeting what we perceive as our own needs in our own way. And of course, on the other side, humility in which God is at the center opens the way for all of these virtues because Christ is the center of our world. Now, if you'll look in your booklets, you'll see that underneath the trunks, I've, I've written a little bit more. Um, I heard about 10 years ago a sermon that I'm still thinking about, and um, it, was, it was by Jerry Root. He's a professor at Wheaton, but also a phenomenal preacher. And what he said is that beneath pride, or beneath humility, beneath either one, there is a, a greater factor. And that greater factor 
is what we believe about God's love for us. And so when we don't trust God's love for us, when when we don't really believe that he is for us, that he desires good for us, this creates a certain franticness. And it's this franticness that leads ourselves to put ourselves at the center of our own world, to take care of ourselves. And this is a reaction. It's a self-soothing. The Bible calls it sin. And this is the mark of Saul's life. Now, how does it get this bad? How does it develop? This is what we want to go back and see. So for now, just flip back to chapter 9. I'll I'll tell you just very briefly what has happened to this point. The very first chapter of this book, 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have Hannah, who is being harassed by Penina, and who has this battle with infertility. She begs God for a child, and the Lord gives her Samuel, which means God hears. After this, we see that the people of Israel are being harassed by the Philistines. They are in a battle for land. They cry out for a king, and God decides, okay, Samuel, my prophet, you may give them a king. And so now, here in chapter 9, we are introduced to Saul, who will be anointed as king. Now, in this chapter, we learn a little bit more about Saul as he's starting out. One of the first things we're told is that he is tall, he's handsome, he's wealthy. He has all of these things that you think would equate to confidence. But of course, that's not really the reality. I have a daughter who is in middle school right now, and I've been trying to convince her that beauty does not actually equate to confidence, that some of the cruelties that that she's finding herself in the midst of have to do with insecurity. And she doesn't believe me, but I think as adults, we know this is true. Beauty does not equal security or confidence. This is definitely the case where Saul is concerned. And so we have this story about Saul going in search of his father's donkeys. If we had not been told in the first two verses that Saul was a young man, we might think that Saul was a young boy. It almost sounds like a young boy who's being taken by the grown-up servant to go find these donkeys. The the servant is leading the way. It's the servant who has sufficiently packed. It's the servant who suggests they go visit Samuel. Saul doesn't even know who Samuel is. Samuel is the leading religious and political figure in the land. And it's the servant having to explain this to Saul. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, by fleshly means, other than the fact that he's tall and warrior kings in those days were expected to be tall, beyond that, he doesn't really seem that that he would be adept as king. But this doesn't matter if he has the Lord's anointing. What we know from from the book of the law is that if this is a legitimate king of Israel, all he has to do is obey the word of the Lord for him to have victory over their enemies. So we see in the flesh that maybe he's not the best choice, but it doesn't matter if he is truly anointed 
And so then what you have running through the end of chapter 9 through chapter 10 are various signs that show us he was indeed anointed by the Lord, by through Samuel's hand. We see that, that um, Samuel knows um, Saul's business before he gets there. He's able to tell Saul, your father's donkeys have been found. He's able to tell Saul, quote unquote, what was on his mind. We don't have to know what it is. The, the point was that Samuel knew and had that sign to give to Saul. And Samuel anoints Saul as king over Israel in this private ceremony. He tells him all of the things that are going to happen the next day in this explicit detail. All of these things come true. Again, another sign to Saul, this really is God's anointing. One of these things is that Saul himself would prophesy, and he does. This is a marker of office. So everything we have in chapter 10 tells us Saul has been anointed by God. If he fails as king, it will be because in some way he refused this anointing. He disbelieved the anointing. And so what follows from chapter 10 through chapter 15 are, are a series of accounts that show us Saul's disbelief and what the Lord spoke over him through Samuel. So there are, there, are, there are four red flags, if we wanted to categorize, four red flags of his disbelief. We see cowardice, disobedience, manipulation, and cover-up. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to just walk us through each one. We'll look at a few more of these verses. And again, we're, we're not doing this to, to point fingers at Saul. We're, we're actually looking for the resonance with our, within our own hearts. So what we see in chapter 10 is all of Israel gathering together for the choosing of their king by lot. Samuel and Saul already know who it's going to be. But this is going to be done, this lot is going to be drawn publicly because this is going to be a sign to the people that this is the Lord's choice. Now, where is Saul as this is unfolding? Let's look, so we're 1 Samuel chapter 10. Let's start reading with verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? Now let me just pause and say, they had to have been looking for a really long time to get to the point of saying, did we hear that right? Did we get that right? This is not like it's time for supper, where's dad? They could not find him. And he hid himself so well, the Lord himself had to tell them where to look. And so they inquire again, and the Lord says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. That doesn't sound voluntary. 
And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Now the great question is this. Saul has all this time by himself in the baggage. And what is he thinking about? What's going through his mind? Does he not want the job? Does he fear failure? I can tell you what he's not thinking about. He's not thinking about all of those signs that accompanied his anointing. He was given every word to believe that what was unfolding was the will of God for the good of the people. But the mark of his disbelief was his cowardice. And so I'm reminded of what Paul said to to Timothy. Timothy struggled with timidity. That's the the nicer way of saying this. And, And so the solution, what Paul said to him was, remember the word that was spoken over you with the laying on of hands by the elders. And so it could be that that some of you are feeling called to some task, some service, and yet there's a reluctance, there's a resistance, and it's worth asking, is there some fear behind this? And if there is fear behind this, the answer is not to believe in yourself. The answer is to look at God's promises of equipping his saints for the tasks to which he has called them. That is where we place our faith. Now, some men are so turned off by Saul's cowardice that they they walk away in a huff, but the mark of the anointed king is that he is going to attract some troops. And so we see this unfold. Let's see, verse 26 Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. And so God does send people to to follow Saul, and what we see next is, um, is a battle in which Saul has success with these men. And so then you have this public coronation of Saul. This is an affirmation of his anointing before the people. You know, you would think we have some confidence building here. Um, And then we come to another battle, now in chapter 13. With this battle, the Philistines are coming against the people of Israel in such a way that, that, that they panic. Israel is panicking. At the start of this account, Israel has 6,000 men. Before it's over, they have 600. 3,000 to 600. So this is a familiar motif. You see it all over Joshua and Judges. You'll see that the army of Israel is in some way minimized. Their their natural strength is, is taken from them in order to show that the battle belongs to the Lord. And so in each of these stories, what happens is that there's some specific instructions that the people are to follow. And if they follow those instructions, they have victory. Well, Saul, I would hope and think, knew these stories. But again, he's not thinking of them because if he had, he wouldn't have done what unfolds here. 
the instructions that were given to him were to wait for Samuel to arrive to do the the requisite pre-battle sacrifice. And when Samuel does not get there in the expected window, Saul just goes ahead and he does it himself. So let's, let's look at the exchange as Samuel does arrive. This is verse 10, chapter 13, verse 10. As soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So this second red flag of disbelief is disobedience. And with this disobedience, notice that it's religious in nature. Our greatest temptations typically are not going to be to do the thing that is obviously evil. It's going to be to act in some situation where our own assessment of the situation overrides God's clear instruction. And so this is what Saul does here. His intention, his good intention as he sees it, overrides God's word, disobedience. Now within this same battle, we see the next next red, red flag, and this would be manipulation. So if you'll flip now to chapter 14, all the way down to verse 24, we read, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now this is manipulative in two respects. Number one, he's essentially saying to his army, the people who are fighting for me, you are going to do what I say, and you're not going to eat until I get what I want. This is abusive leadership. And here the men are needing sustenance in the heat of battle, and he forbids this very thing. It is going to cause them to go into sin later on when they do win the battle. They are so famished, they eat the food without properly cooking it. So he leads his own men into sin. His own son eats honey, not even knowing about the vow, and the army has to intercede to save for him. But the other thing, that I would say maybe even the more important thing is that fasting, once again, was a religious act. And in this part of the world, at that time, it was unique to Israel. This was a unique aspect of Israel's worship. And Saul uses this in his desperation to control the outcome of the battle. 
Now, there is a fasting in which we are seeking God that's different from an act of piety in which we are trying to, um, to, to make God do what we want. If I do this, then God owes me this. This is not faith. This is magic. Magic is about manipulation. And Saul was trying to use fasting in a magical way. If he had believed the word of the Lord, that wouldn't even be necessary. They were promised victory where they had obedience. Now the final thing, as we come now into chapter 15, the final red flag of disbelief would be cover-up. So in chapter 15, we have this battle with the Amalekites in which Saul is instructed in the defeat of the Amalekites to destroy all of the Amalekites from the people to the animals. I realize this is a really hard concept, and if anyone needs to talk to me about it later, feel free to grab me, but um, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to go into that. What we need to know is that Saul did not do as he was told. So verse 9, we read, But Saul and the people spared Agag, that was the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now, if you look again at that vice tree, we see that when we don't trust in God's love, we don't trust him to provide what we feel we need or what we feel we deserve, we take it upon ourselves to reward ourselves, which is what unfolds here. But again, my, my main purpose with this section is to show how Saul responds to that word of correction. And so the first thing that happens when Samuel shows up is Saul goes to him and says, well, I did everything you told me to do. And Samuel says, all right, well, how is it that I hear this cacophony of farm animals? And Samuel says, oh, well, yes, well, we were saving those. We, we were saving those for a special sacrifice. And at this point, this is where Samuel says, enough. And he pronounces judgment against Saul and says the worst thing you could say to someone who is insecure, that he is going to give the kingdom to someone who is better. Now, we had the definition of better in chapter 13 when Samuel first said, you're not going to have a dynasty. This dynasty after you is going to go to someone after God's own heart. And so in chapter 13, that was essentially saying, it won't be a, your son is not going to reign after you. In chapter 15, we now have your own kingship has been rejected. Now, Saul could have accepted this judgment in a spirit of repentance. You might say, I don't know, that's a pretty bad day for him. Wouldn't that be expecting much? But let me give you a preview. We are going to see in David's life a judgment pronounced against him that is going to have consequences to the very day of his death. 
He is going to have a lifelong consequence unfold in his life. And his response is going to be to worship. That will be his response. The fruit of belief ultimately is worship. The ability to give praise in any and every situation, knowing that God is good and that he is good to us, whatever that may look like. Now, Saul obviously does not have this. And what we have at the end of chapter 15 is actually a tipping point into apostasy. So in a lot of what I've said tonight, I, I think you know most of it, at least for me, is, is a little bit relatable. Things are going to take a more criminal turn for Saul after this point. We'll see tomorrow. And I'm, I'm really just kind of having to live on a down note, but this down note really is important. We begin, we always begin by looking in the mirror. I'm sure at least some of you know the, the Taylor Swift song, Anti-Hero. She says, I'll stare directly into the sun, but I won't look in the mirror. It really would be easier to look in the sun sometimes. But, but we're going to have the courage with one another in community to look in the mirror. We're, we're going to trust that, that if we are the people of God, then we are bearing the grace of God for one another. And we know that the sacrifice God most desires is a broken and contrite heart that he will not despise. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.